Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another study of biblical history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time, we reviewed some of the purposes that Paul and the Holy Spirit may have had for composing the book of Romans, as well as surveyed some of the key historical events that may have been significant factors in shaping its contents. And we looked at a real simple outline of the book of Romans in its five basic sections in order to trace Paul's flow of thought here in this book. In today's podcast, we will try to cover the first of those five sections of Romans, which we have labeled the bad news first. Let's pray before we begin our study. God of Abraham, the one whose presence fills the infinite universe and in whom we live and move and have our being, we are studying your word, which your spirit inspired your bondservant Paul to write down, not only for the saints in Rome in the first century, but for all saints of all generations of this eternal age. Help us to understand what it meant to those saints in the first century so that we can make the right application to us today. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be sure you have your Bible open to Romans chapter 1 so that you can see the biblical text as we talk about it. The first section here is verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, and all the commentaries refer to it as the salutation and opening comments of Apostle Paul. And Leon Morris, in his pillar commentary on the book of Romans, notes that Paul takes his letter openings more seriously than do his more conventional contemporaries, and he makes them the vehicles of important Christian teaching. This ordinarily means a somewhat longer introduction than was normal. Nowhere is Paul's ability to use the conventional letter-writing form more apparent than in Romans. This opening is longer and much more formal than in Paul's other letters, perhaps because he was not personally known to the Roman church perhaps also because he did not want anyone to doubt his position as an apostle to the Gentiles. Well, here in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul describes himself as a bondservant or slave of Messiah Jesus. The word here in the Greek is doulos, which means slave. It's not diakonos, which means servant. In the Old Testament, as illustrated in Exodus 21, verses 3 through 6, and Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 through 17, there were several types of slaves or servants. So, what does Paul have in mind when he calls himself the slave of Jesus Christ? Leon Morris explains this. He says, As the Christians use the term slave, it conveys the idea of complete and utter devotion, not the abjectness which was the normal condition of the slave, Paul is affirming that he belongs to Christ without reservation. The term is applied to Abraham in Genesis 26, verse 24, to Moses in Joshua 1, 2, and to the prophets from the time of Amos onward, Amos 3, 7, and Isaiah 20, verse 3. Paul may thus be quietly affirming that he stands in the true succession of the prophets. If this is in mind, it may be significant that he speaks of himself as a slave, not of God, as the prophets did, but of Christ. He puts Christ in the highest possible place. Paul thinks of himself as bound to serve Christ throughout the rest of his life. That is what a bondservant or slave is. They voluntarily submit themselves to serve their master until their dying breath. Paul says he was called by Jesus personally and set apart for proclaiming the good news. 
he considered himself totally devoted to that gospel proclamation task until his martyrdom or the parousia, whichever came first. In verses 1 through 4, Paul teaches some powerful truths here in these first opening comments. He says in verses 1 through 4 that God is a trinity. He refers to God and then his Son and the Spirit. All three right there in those first four verses. So it's very clear that Paul understood the idea of a trinity. He may not have expressly called it a trinity, but he teaches that idea of three divine persons, nevertheless. Also in verses 1 and 2 here, he talks about the gospel being promised in the Old Testament. And so there's an affirmation of the Old Testament teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very interesting how he brings that in right in the first two verses. Paul implies the pre-existence of the Son, here in verse 3, before Jesus was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was the Son of the Father in heaven. And then in uh, verses 3 and 4, Jesus is the promised Davidic Messiah and divine Son of God. Jesus was raised back out of Hades, thus proving true all of his claims to be the divine Son of God. Verse 4 teaches that. Uh, The resurrection of the dead proved the deity of Christ. And then in verse 4 also is a reference to Jesus as being the Lord. In the Greek, that's kurios. And notice he proclaims Jesus as the Lord and Master, not the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, you would expect in a book that's going to the city of Rome that Nero would be proclaimed as Lord God of the universe. But not so with Apostle Paul. Just like he did not accept Ananias, the son of Debus, as the high priest in Jerusalem, because he believed Jesus was the high priest, neither does he accept Nero as Lord, because Jesus is Lord. And it's interesting that this uh, phrase of Jesus being referred to as the Lord, kurios in the Greek, is stated 18 times here in the book of Romans. Uh, The first reference, of course, is here in verse 4 of chapter 1. Jesus is Lord, not Nero. Note that Paul views his apostolic task here in verse 5 as bringing about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. We see a similar phrase in Romans 16, verse 26, where he says, leading to obedience of faith among all the nations. And Romans 6, especially verse 17, shows that obedience from the heart is required to be set free from slavery to sin. For those who may be tempted to think that Paul teaches an easy believism kind of faith that saves without any kind of repentance, obedience, or change of lifestyle, these three verses set the record straight. It is true that obedience is required for sanctification later after regeneration. But Paul in these three texts, Romans 1, 5, Romans 6, 17, and Romans 16, 26, necessarily implies that obedience from a heart that trusts in Christ is essential before we can walk in newness of life. It is not mere sterile belief of some facts about Christ which saves us. It is instead a kind of faith which obeys Christ by dying to sin, or repenting, and no longer living in sin. Romans 6, verse 2. In Romans 6, verse 16, Paul says this idea just about as clearly as it could be said. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Paul does not teach a saving kind of faith that is totally devoid of any kind of behavior or lifestyle changes. Instead, the kind of faith that Paul is teaching here in Romans 
is that faith which expresses itself in obedience, repentance, righteousness, and sanctification. Without that kind of obedient faith, there is no forgiveness, righteousness, justification, or sanctification. Here in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, Paul is not just defending his apostleship against some there at Rome who might have been questioning it. Instead, he is declaring his divinely appointed apostleship among all the Gentiles, including the Gentile saints there in Rome. If we miss this point, we have missed something very significant here in Paul's message to the Romans. It is not just generic apostolic authority that he's asserting here, but more especially a divinely appointed commission to all the Gentiles throughout the whole world, including even those and especially those at Rome, even though he was not the founder of that church in Rome. Now that's a very important point, and it's very clear here in verses 5 and 6 that that's what he's pointing toward. It's not just generic apostleship. It's specific apostleship to all the Gentiles throughout the whole world. The length of this salutation here in verses 1 through 7 and its powerful contents show that Paul was laser-focused on developing a good relationship with the Roman Christians. He really does a good job with this introduction. He wants to make sure he lets them know where he really stands and what his real heart's desire is. It is not just his apostleship that he emphasizes here, but more especially his being called as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Notice that last phrase, among all the Gentiles. That idea of Paul being an apostle to all the Gentiles, shows up repeatedly throughout this opening section in verses 5, 8, 13, and 14, as well as in chapter 11, verse 13, and chapter 15, verse 16. And his exhortations to the Gentiles throughout the book are clearly coming from someone who considers himself to have apostolic authority over all the Gentiles throughout the whole world, including Rome not just in the churches he had personally established in Greece, Macedonia, and Turkey. Quite often in Paul's letters, Paul mentions the purpose or theme of his letter in the opening and closing sections, and he does that here as well. In the first 17 verses of chapter 1, Paul was aiming to establish a close connection to the church in Rome for several purposes. He shows that he has the right to do that since he was set apart by Christ to preach the gospel to all the Gentiles throughout the whole world, including the rest of the Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians, and those also who are in Rome. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, verses 5 through 6, verse 8, and verses 13 through 15. Paul clearly sees himself as being under obligation to preach to all Gentiles, including the Greeks and barbarians. Therefore, the Gentiles in Rome are in a significant sense within his jurisdiction as an apostle to the Gentiles. The contents of this book would not have been accepted by the Romans or any other Gentiles unless they could see clearly that its author was divinely appointed as an apostle to all the Gentiles, even among churches that he had not personally founded. Paul clearly understands their need to see that he was divinely commissioned to minister the gospel to all Gentiles, including those at Rome, and he takes great care to do so right here at the beginning and in the ending of this letter, both in Romans chapter 1, verses 5-6, through 6, and Romans 15, verses 16 through 32. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul refers to the Roman Christians as beloved of God, called as saints. These are definitely terms of endearment, designed to effect a closer relationship with the Roman Christians. See similar compliments 
in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Some ancient manuscript copies of Romans are missing the words in Rome here in verse 7. And Bruce Metzger, who is a textual critic, commented on this peculiarity. He says, a majority of the uh, textual criticism committee interpreted the absence of the words in Rome in several witnesses, and he lists those here, uh, looks like there's five of them, either as the result of an accident in transcription or, more probably, as a deliberate excision made in order to show that the letter is of general, not local, application. Whether the omission of the designation in Rome is also connected with the circulation of an alternative, shorter or longer form of the letter is an open question. However, if we look at the rest of the opening comments here in verses 1 through 17, we'll see that he mentions that idea of in Rome another time or two. And so it's very clear from the rest of the book that he's writing to the Roman Christians, originally at least. The letter may have been circulated among other churches later, but the original production was written to the church in Rome. In verses 8 through 15 uh, is Paul's prayer about the Roman Christians and prayer for the Roman Christians and his appeal, of course, to them to pray for him as well. In verse 8, Paul thanks God for the Roman saints whose faith is being proclaimed in the whole world. Note this phrase, in the whole world. In the Greek, that's in holo to cosmo. Similar phrases are used in Matthew 24, verse 14, and a number of other texts there that I have listed in the lesson outline. I believe this is referring to the Roman world or the diaspora, not to the whole planet of earth. And so he's thanking God for those Roman saints whose faith is being proclaimed in the whole Roman world or diaspora. In verse 9, Paul prays for the church there in Rome. Now, we may wonder why he prays for them. And, of course, there's a specific reason why he is praying for them there, and he mentions those reasons here in the text. We mentioned in past sessions the reason why the Holy Spirit moved Paul to claim and assert this apostolic authority among the Gentile Christians there at Rome. It was because this church at Rome was located in a strategic place in the empire, which automatically gave them a lot of influence for the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel would have a hard time establishing itself anywhere else in the empire if it was not already represented in the city of Rome itself. But it was also because this church was looked to as a model or example for all the other Gentile churches to follow. If the predominantly Gentile church in Rome did not accept the Jewish Christians as fellow heirs of grace and honor the Jews for sharing their spiritual riches with them, then the rest of the Gentile churches would have difficulty doing that as well. Paul and the Holy Spirit are making sure that the strategic influence and good example of the Gentile Christians in Rome are properly developed and maintained. Moreover, the Holy Spirit knew about the upcoming Neuronic persecution and used Paul's letter to the Roman church to strengthen and prepare them for that horrendous tribulation that was soon to come, just six years down the road. In verses 10 through 15, Paul wanted to visit Rome, and he mentions the reasons why he wants to visit them. Number one, to impart some spiritual gift to them, to fully establish them, to encourage them and be encouraged by each other's faith, to obtain some fruit or make disciples among them, and fourthly, to preach the true gospel to them. Very interesting that he mentions what his motives were for coming to visit them. Very good motives. At the end of the book, Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 32, 
Paul mentions additional reasons why he wanted to visit the Christians in Rome. There's nine of those. Number one was he wanted to see them in passing when he traveled to Spain to enjoy their company for a while, to be helped on his way to Spain by them, to make sure they were on the same page with him in regard to the contents of the gospel, to help both the Jews and Gentiles accept each other and be united together, to help the Gentile Christians understand that they were indebted to the Jews for sharing the kingdom with them, to help the Jewish Christians accept the Gentiles as fellow heirs, to get the full blessing and support of the Roman Christians for his missionary efforts, and, number nine, to come to them in joy and find refreshing rest in their company. A lot of really, really good purposes for coming to visit them. Of course, the Holy Spirit was the prime facilitator behind all of this missionary activity, and it was his sovereign providential work behind the scenes that was at play here in Paul's coming to visit them. Paul would indeed finally reach Rome about three years later, but it was not in the way he expected as a prisoner, nor was it for all the purposes that he had originally envisioned on his way to Spain. The Holy Spirit, who was the paraclete or helper of the apostles, was directing all this activity for his own sovereign purposes and glory. And one of the most important purposes of the Holy Spirit was to make sure both the Jews and Gentiles accepted each other and were united together in this very strategic and influential city of Rome, which was in the very heart of the Gentile world. That unity would be a model for all the churches of the Gentiles. This was the final step in solidifying the universal and eternal kingdom of Christ. The success of that transfer of the kingdom from the Jews to the universal kingdom of all nations was dependent upon the Jews accepting the Gentiles and the Gentiles honoring the Jews as the conduit of their spiritual blessings. Well, here in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Paul shows us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation both of the Jews and the Greeks. In the first 16 verses of this book, Paul has mentioned or alluded to the Gentiles five times, and to the Jews only once. It is clear that Paul is focused on reaching out to the Gentile Christians there in Rome. In verse 15, he had just stated that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Here in verse 16, he notes that He is not ashamed of the gospel, nor afraid to preach it, even in a dangerous place like Rome, because the gospel had the power within itself to save everyone who believes, both Jews and Gentiles. Notice the priority of Paul's preaching was still to the Jews first. Throughout all of his missionary journeys, that was his priority, and it still is, even right here at the end of his third missionary journey. This was critical for the accomplishment of the Great Commission and for the successful transfer of the kingdom from the Jews to the universal and eternal kingdom of Christ. It was necessary that the Jews hear the gospel first. Most of them would reject the gospel and cut themselves off from the olive tree, leaving a vacancy for the Gentiles to fill up. Only a remnant of Jews would remain attached to the olive tree. The Gentiles were grafted into the place of those Jews who had been cut off to join that righteous remnant of Jews and thus complete the full number of Israelites who were destined to be saved. But the wild branches, or Gentiles, could not be grafted into the olive tree until some of the native branches were cut off first. This means that the gospel had to go to the Jews first so that the unbelieving natural branches would be cut off first and make room for the wild branches to be grafted in their place. The kingdom blessings belong to Israel. All the kingdom promises had been given to Israel. Gentiles could only get into the kingdom by becoming true spiritual Israelites, 
or children of Abraham by faith in Christ. So the good news about the arrival of the kingdom had to be preached to Israel first. Israel had the first right of refusal. Then if they rejected it, the believing Gentiles could be grafted in place of those Israelites who were broken off for their unbelief. And that is exactly what Paul was trying to accomplish in his missionary efforts. In every new city he entered, his first stop to preach was at the local synagogue. Then when they rejected the gospel, he immediately turned to the Gentiles to graft them into the olive tree from which the unbelieving Jews had just cut themselves off. This was Paul's procedure everywhere he went. He preached to the Jews first. After the Gentiles were grafted in and began to enjoy the spiritual riches of the kingdom and began to produce much fruit in every nation, it made the unbelieving Israelites jealous. Some of those native branches that had been cut off were now grafted back into their own native olive tree. Thus, as a result of the combination of the small remnant of believing Israelites and the engrafted Gentiles and the regrafted Israelites, the full number of Israelites was now finally achieved. All Israel could be saved. The fact that Paul talks about all of this here in the book of Romans shows that this process was at the critical point of achievement. They were almost there. The gospel had been fully preached to all the Israelites in the diaspora in the Roman world. Paul emphasizes that at least twice in this book, that the gospel had been fully preached. Most of the Israelites had rejected it, while the Gentiles embraced it. This had made the unbelieving Israelites jealous, and some of them were beginning to take a second look at the spiritual kingdom and were being grafted back into it. This was the signal that the end was near. When they saw the rest of the believing Israelites being regrafted into their own olive tree, thus completing the full number of true spiritual Israelites who would inherit the eternal spiritual and heavenly kingdom. But if the Gentiles wanted to be saved, they had to be grafted into the olive tree of true spiritual Israel. They could not be saved apart from Israel. They had to have the acceptance and nourishment from the native olive tree to survive. The domesticated olive tree had to form a tight bond with those wild branches and provide the life-giving sap to those engrafted branches. Otherwise, the wild branches would die. This bonding between the Jews and the Gentiles was critical, and it required something from both the Jews and Gentiles to make it work. The Gentiles had to humble themselves and become totally dependent upon the Jewish olive tree for their spiritual life. And the Jewish olive tree had to accept these new branches and bond with them in order to produce the fruit that God required from all the nations. The Holy Spirit, working through the apostles, had just about completed this process. Right after Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, he traveled to Jerusalem with the Gentile contributions. That love offering was a clear indication that the Gentiles appreciated, respected, honored, and depended on the Jews for their source of spiritual nourishment. If the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem accepted those love offerings, it means that they were accepting the wild olive branches and forming a tight, life-giving bond with them in order to share in the fruit that those Gentile branches would produce in every nation of the world. The Jews were commanded to produce fruit in all the nations, but they had not done so. And now, through the Gentile converts, they were in a position to bring in fruit from all the Gentiles. And by accepting the contributions of the Gentiles, they were sharing in that fruit among all the Gentiles. That Gentile contribution sealed the deal. The kingdom had now become universal among all nations. Its future was no longer endangered by the demise of the temple in 70 A.D. The universal kingdom had been born 
and was already breathing on its own. The umbilical cord could now be cut, and cut it was in 8070. Well, we might ask, how in the world was all Israel saved before the end in 70 AD? Because not all who were fleshly Israelites were saved before 70 AD. In fact, most of those who were fleshly Israelites were destroyed. Well, Paul describes the achievement of Jew-Gentile unity as the salvation of all Israel. All Israel is saved when that Jew-Gentile unity was achieved. Of course, we're going to deal with that in greater detail when we get to chapters 9 through 11, but something needs to be said here at the beginning about what kind of salvation Paul is talking about here in this book. Obviously, it was a salvation that would arrive at the parousia. So it was not talking about their becoming Christians at the parousia. Only those who were already Christians before the parousia would get this other kind of salvation at the parousia. How we define and explain that salvation of all Israel depends on whether we see the salvation as only collectively received or as individually experienced also. Perhaps this would be a good spot to explain some of the differences between the individual body and collective body views regarding this Jew-Gentile unity that resulted in the salvation of all Israel at the parousia. This is one of those rare instances where there is some significant agreement between the two views, the collective body view and the individual body view. For instance, both views agree that the universal kingdom of both Jews and Gentiles was finally and fully established when all Israel, true spiritual Israel, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, was saved at the parousia. However, the difference between those two views shows up when each view explains what that salvation was and how it was received and experienced by those first century Christians at the parousia. In one of his recent sermons, Dave Curtis asserted that both the collective body and individual body views believe in a collective body and in individual bodies. He said that belief in a collective body presupposes the existence of individual bodies, and belief in individual bodies presupposes the existence of a collective body as well. Now, we might quibble with the logic there a little bit, but that is where the similarity between the two views ends. There's a huge difference, and I would say poles apart, between the two views on how we explain the nature of fulfillment in relation to those two different kinds of bodies. The collective body view sees that salvation of all Israel as a covenantal status change that was completed upon the collective body of all Jewish and Gentile believers at the parousia. Those saints who remained alive at the parousia did not experience that covenantal status change in an individual cognitive way, but rather only as a part of the collective body which received that new covenantal status. The typical reaction of a futurist to this collective body explanation of the salvation is, Huh? You mean that is all they received at the parousia? Just a share? in the covenantal status change of the collective body, and nothing else? Was that all they were expecting to receive? Weren't they also expecting to individually see, hear, and experience that salvation in a tangible, cognitive, and individual bodily way? Lest there be any confusion on this point, we need to state for the record that the individual body view agrees with the idea of some kind of status change at the parousia for a collective body of true spiritual Israel. But we don't stop there like the collective body guys do. There's much more to it. That is just one aspect 
of the whole complex of salvation events that occurred at the parousia, not only for the collective body, but for all the individual saints as well. It is this individual experience of the salvation at the parousia which the collective body view simply does not allow for, because it would mean that those individual saints who saw Christ at his parousia and experienced that great salvation would have been cognitively aware of that experience afterwards. They would have been talking about it to their friends, relatives, children, and grandchildren. They would not have remained silent about it, especially when they heard Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius claiming that the parousia was still future. So the collective body sees that silence as proof that the parousia was not experienced in an individual cognitive way but rather was only a non-cognitive and non-experienced covenantal status change for a collective body. Do you catch what they're saying? But this idea of a non-cognitive and non-experienced covenantal status change for a collective body has a huge historical problem. Futurists like Dr. Charles Hill of the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando have pointed out that the first century saints were expecting to see, hear, and experience something at the parousia. They were told that they would be adopted into the heavenly family of God, revealed as his sons and daughters, enter into that heavenly kingdom, be relieved from their tribulation, rescued before the wrath came, and rewarded in the presence of Christ at his appearing. They were told that they would see him at his appearing and would glorify him on that day and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed. This was anything but a non-cognitive and non-experiential parousia event. They were not expecting to experience all that and be left around on earth afterwards totally in the dark about what had just happened. Paul told them that when the perfect came, they would know fully and see clearly as if face to face. What happened to that full knowledge and experience of the parousia afterwards? At the very time when they should have understood everything clearly and experienced everything fully, just as they had been promised, we find nothing but silence and confusion. Because of their a priori rejection of the biblical bodily change and rapture concepts, the collective body view is forced to interpret the silence and confusion as proof that the parousia was not experienced in any cognitive way whatsoever by individuals, and that it must have been a non-cognitive and non-experienced covenantal status change only for the collective body. Do you catch the logic of that? Who is really arguing their case from silence here? It's not the individual body view, because we believe the expectation statements are biblical proof that the parousia would be seen, heard, and cognitively experienced by those individual saints. If the parousia occurred, and they experienced it in the cognitive way that they were expecting, they could not have remained silent about it afterwards. If they were still around on earth after AD 70 and were silent about the parousia, it would only prove one thing, non-occurrence of the parousia. But if they were no longer on earth after AD 70, their silence would be perfectly understandable. They could not talk about it because they were no longer on earth. They had been taken to heaven. Their physical bodies had been changed from mortal to immortal, and they had been caught up to be with all the other saints in the heavenly presence of Christ. So we see that even though the collective body view and the individual body view might agree that there was some kind of salvation of all Israel at the parousia, each of the views differ widely on how we explain the nature of that salvation and how it was received and experienced by the individual saints at the parousia. As we noticed, the collective body view explains it merely as a non-cognitive and non-experiential covenantal status change for a collective body at the parousia. 
But the individual body view does not stop there. We agree that there was some kind of status change for all the saints at the parousia, but it was not a non-cognitive and non-experiential change. We believe all those saints, dead or alive, knew the parousia occurred and experienced it in the very cognitive way that the biblical expectation statements had led them to expect. So there is a big difference between the two views over how we explain the experience of that promised salvation of all Israel at the parousia. Well, I think that's all we need to say at this point about the differences between the two views. We'll get more into that as we reach some of the later chapters in the book of Romans, especially when we get into the third and fourth sections of our study here. So let's get back into the text of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These two verses introduce what Paul is going to talk about in this book. It's a summary of the contents of this letter and a summary of his own perspective. Notice these key words or concepts that are mentioned here in these two verses. The gospel, salvation of believers, Jewish priority in hearing the gospel, but Gentiles could also be saved if they believed. The gospel revealed the righteousness of God and Men gain life and a status of righteousness before God through their faith. This nicely summarizes the major contents of this book and prepares the reader for objectively considering Paul's gospel and how it relates to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul's gospel is his perspective on salvation and justification, but it is not just his perspective. It is the divine perspective as well. He claims direct revelation for his gospel in Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 and that any who reject it are rejected as well. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 38. This means that if we want to have the correct perspective on salvation and justification, we need to know what Paul teaches in his gospel because his gospel is the divine perspective. And that is what this book of Romans is laser-focused on explaining. Paul's gospel, which is the divine perspective on salvation. The traditional perspective on Paul, which came from the early reformers like Luther and Calvin, ignores much of the historical and eschatological background that is so crucial to understanding the book of Romans. Reformed commentaries of the last five centuries have instead focused more on the sociological argumentation of Paul here in Romans, which is justification by faith without works. However, within the last 40 years, since E.P. Sanders' two books, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, and Paul, the Law, and the Jewish People, which were written in 1977 and 1985 respectively, Since those two books were written, the traditional perspective on Apostle Paul has come under increasing re-evaluation and modification. This process of critique and adjustment to our perspective on Apostle Paul and his explanation of justification has been labeled as the new perspective on Paul. While the motives behind the new perspective are laudable, the presuppositions each of them starts with, and the methodology they use has produced mixed results. There is not just one new perspective on Paul. There are dozens of them, and none of them have really taken into consideration the full implications of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It is high time that we full preterists engage in that discussion from a conservative evangelical perspective. We have a lot to offer regarding both the historical and eschatological aspects of the debate. Our contribution to the discussion is the best perspective on Paul because it goes all the way back to the first century historical context and restores the original perspective on Paul, which is Paul's own perspective on himself and the divine perspective as well. So in our study of Romans here, we are reconnecting 
Paul's teaching on justification to its original historical and eschatological context to make sure we understand it correctly the way Paul and the Holy Spirit intended for it to be understood and applied in the first century. That indeed is the best perspective on Paul because it is the original biblical perspective on Paul and his gospel. Well, here in verses 18 and following, Paul begins the first section of his argumentation, which we have entitled, The Bad News First. After Paul's opening comments in the first 17 verses of chapter 1, he jumps right into the heart of his argumentation. He gives the bad news first, which is universal condemnation of all men, including both Jews and Gentiles. Someone once said, There ain't no good news if there ain't no bad news. In other words, the good news will not appear to be good unless there is some bad news out there to contrast it with. A solution is not a solution unless there is a problem that it solves. Paul must have understood that principle very well, since he does not give the Romans any good news until after he has whacked them with the bad news first. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul delivers a withering condemnation against the Gentile world first, and then puts the unbelieving Jews in the same boat with them. The whole world is under condemnation, not just the Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile need to be rescued off of that sinking ship. Let's look at the structure of Paul's argumentation here against both the Gentiles and the Jews. In verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, Paul begins with something everybody could agree with. The Gentile world was grossly wicked and under condemnation. Both Jewish and Gentile Christians agreed with that. This got all of the saints there in Rome, both Jew and Gentile, on the same page with Paul and the Holy Spirit. The Gentile world was obviously under condemnation and wrath, especially those who were grossly wicked like the ones he describes here in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul shows that even those like the Greeks and Jews who condemn the gross wickedness of the Gentiles and who trust in their own wisdom and righteousness to earn God's favor are under condemnation as well. Their great wisdom and moralistic lifestyle will not give them a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're under condemnation just like the Gentiles are. And so, some commentaries have noted that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, it seems like Paul may be referring to some of the Greeks who were quite righteous in their conduct, very moralistic people, and who pursued wisdom, not only in the academics, but in their lifestyle as well. And so, that could be the case. Paul may be referring to those Greeks and maybe some Jews also, who were condemning the gross wickedness of other Gentiles, such as the barbarians, who were notoriously wicked, and they were also trusting in their own wisdom and righteousness to earn God's favor. But Paul says, that won't work either. It doesn't matter if you're grossly wicked or righteous like some of the Greeks are. It still won't buy you a get-out-of-jail-free card. But it was not just the Gentiles or those righteous Greeks who were under condemnation. The Jews also had been cut off from the blessings by their unbelief and wickedness. The Jews put themselves on a pedestal above the Gentiles and were critical and judgmental against the Gentiles, yet they were guilty of the same kind of sinfulness. It accomplished nothing toward their salvation for the Jews to have circumcision and law-keeping. They were under condemnation just like the Gentiles. In spite of their great wisdom and law-keeping righteousness, they were no better off than the moralizing Greeks or even the more grossly wicked barbarians. 
the Jews are under the same condemnation and likewise subject to the judgment and wrath of God. As a result of these three sections, chapters 1, verse 18 through 32, against the Gentiles, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, against the Greeks and maybe some Jews, and then chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, against the Jewish people as well. These three sections, Paul has now shut up all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, under universal condemnation. That was very bad news indeed for all mankind, including the Jews. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, Paul gives a rapid-fire response to various objections that some may have raised against the principle of universal condemnation. After quickly and easily deconstructing each of those objections, he sealed his argument for universal condemnation airtight with a quote from seven different Old Testament texts. It is just amazing the litany of text that Paul brings to bear against the Jews here in chapter 3. Seven different texts in almost that many verses, proving that there is none righteous in God's sight, not even among the Jews. All had turned aside and were under the condemnation and wrath of God. Well, that was very bad news, I'm sure, for the Jews especially. The Jews certainly did not like to think of themselves as under the same condemnation that the Gentiles were under. Well, in this study of the first section of Romans, chapter 1 down through chapter 3, verse 20, we might ask how this section of Romans lends any support to either the collective body view or the individual body view. I'm not aware of any significant usage of these first three chapters of Romans by the collective body advocates to support their concept of a collective body view. I could have missed it, but I haven't seen their use or reference to chapters 1 through 3 in their defense of the collective body view. Their major use of Romans is focused on chapters 6 through 11. And so when we get to chapters 6 through 11, we'll be talking a lot more about how they use those chapters to defend the collective body position. However, there are some verses in these first three chapters where Paul deals with both collective groups and individual exceptions to the general rules that govern those collective groups. But there's no indication anywhere in these first three chapters that he's talking exclusively about the collective body of Israel being the only ones who were under condemnation. The focus here is not on Israel exclusively, but rather on all men, Jew and Gentile alike. All are under condemnation equally. There is not the slightest hint here in these three chapters that Paul is setting up some kind of collective body argument focused exclusively on Old Covenant Israel. Instead, his focus here in these three chapters is on proving that all men, especially the Gentiles and even the Jews, were universally under condemnation. However, the first 16 verses of chapter 2 has a very clear exceptional tone to it. Paul uses terms like everyone, yourself, each person, every soul, written in their hearts, individually, etc. All of these terms are connected to individuals and not to a collective body. In Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 especially, Paul makes it clear that there were individual exceptions to the general rule of condemnation. God will render to each person, he says, according to his own particular deeds. Chapter 2, verse 6, those individuals who persevere in doing good will receive eternal life. Chapter 2, verse 7, those individuals who do not obey the truth will receive wrath and indignation. Chapter 2, verse 8, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul, i.e., every individual who does evil, regardless of whether he is Jew or Greek. It is clear here in these texts 
that Paul is not setting up any collective body argument. The language is unambiguously individualistic. In this chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 10 especially, the charge of condemnation was not slapped onto whole nations without exception. In chapter 2, Paul clearly makes room for individual Jews and individual Gentiles to escape condemnation. Paul talks about an individual Gentile, uncircumcised man who keeps the requirements of the law being regarded as circumcised in heart and therefore pleasing to God. Chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. Even though the whole world as a collective group was under universal condemnation, it did not mean that every individual would ultimately be condemned. That individual exceptional idea is found in chapter 3 as well. Paul refers to some Israelites who did not believe, not the whole nation. It was some of them who did not believe, some individuals who did not believe. And those individuals who did not believe were cut off. So it was not the whole collective body that was cut off, but only those who did not believe. Romans 3 verse 3. These were individual exceptions to the general rule. But the big point that we need to make here is that nowhere in this section about universal condemnation does Paul refer to that condemnation, judgment, and wrath as death of a collective body of Israel. Nor does he refer to justification and imputed righteousness as resurrection of a dead collective body out of Old Covenant Judaism. Those ideas would have to be imported from outside the context. They're not found here in this context. Well, that's enough to cover in this session. We have seen the basic flow of Paul's argument here in chapters 1 through 3 and how he shuts every Jewish and Gentile bragging mouth and brings all of them under condemnation. That was really bad news for everyone. In the next section basically chapters 4 and 5, Paul will deliver some good news to them. And I'm sure they're anxious to hear it after hearing this withering condemnation in chapters 1 through 3. We might note that understanding the book of Romans is not really rocket science. The only reason we preterists are having difficulty understanding it is because of the confusion that has been introduced into the book of Romans by the untraditional approach of the collective body advocates. When we take a more traditional approach to it, it's easy to understand this book. That's about all we need to say at this point about these three chapters. I'm going to be in Baltimore this coming week to set up an exhibit booth at the Evangelical Theological Society conference there. This will be our 15th year to set up an exhibit booth there, and it's been a very productive chance to get the preterist message into the eyes and ears of some very conservative theologians and seminary students. And so there's a good chance that I may not be able to produce a podcast for next Sunday because I'm going to be gone all week out there to that conference in Baltimore. So if I don't post a podcast next week, you'll know why. Well, that'll wrap up our study for this session. Hope it was helpful for you. And if you have any comments or concerns about what we said, I would enjoy hearing from you. Please send me some feedback and tell me what you're learning from this study of Romans. I would love to hear about it. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to Preterist1 at Preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.